This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Good evening, my name is Grant, uh, and I'm glad to be with you. So let's, let's pray and then we'll get started. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for calling us to be uh, your family in the church. And we thank you for this particular uh, communion of Anglican Christians that we're going to think about today. And we pray that you would help us to understand why we look like the way we do, uh, why we do the things we do. And we pray that you help us to understand our mission more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, those of you who haven't met, I'm, I'm Grant, and I'm the priest in charge at the moment, which is really um, a wonderful thing for me. Uh, uh, my wife, Wendy, and I worshipped here for 10 years before we went to Ethiopia for the last five and a half years or so, where I was the bishop for the Horn of Africa, which includes Eritrea, Djibouti, Somalia, and Ethiopia. It's all part of the Diocese of Egypt with North Africa and the Horn of Africa. And we're back here now. Uh, Wendy has some medical problems which uh, have prevented us from staying there. But we're really glad to be back at Ascension and glad to be able to fill in for Jonathan while he and Andrea are enjoying what they're calling a sabbatical. I think it's an extended honeymoon, right? So that's, but whatever it is, I'm sure it's a good thing. I have a few more copies of these. If a whole bunch more people come in, uh, then please share them. So my task tonight is to talk about something about um, Anglican theology and uh, then about Anglican liturgy. And we'll talk about Anglican liturgy a little bit in this first section, but... We'll, we'll talk mostly about Anglican liturgy when we come to do uh, what's called an instructed Eucharist. So we'll have our Eucharist tonight. We'll actually have it in here. So we'll, we'll have a little break and set, set up at, at, some, at one point. And we'll go through the entire service of Holy Communion trying to understand why we do what we do when we do it. So I hope that that will all be very helpful for you. If you've got questions, please stop me. Uh, I can tend to just keep going. Yes? How do you pronounce the last name? Think about marking on the blackboard. Um, yeah, so stop me at any point if you, if you have any questions. So first of all, uh, one helpful way of thinking about Anglicanism is to think of it as what's been called a via media. This is uh, a phrase that came out of the work of an Anglican theologian, uh, in the late part of the Reformation named Richard Hooker. Uh, Richard Hooker argued that Anglicanism is both Catholic and Protestant. Uh, Catholic in the sense that Anglicans claim to believe what all Christians have always believed. So one of the things that you can discover about Anglicans is that there isn't one major theologian that defines the tradition. So in Presbyterianism, the theologian that defines the tradition is certainly John Calvin. In Lutheranism, might be Martin Luther, uh, and, and, and so on. And probably for Roman Catholicism, it's Thomas Aquinas. But for, for Anglicans, there are some people we look to as really important, like Thomas Cranmer, who compiled the prayer book and was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the time of the Reformation. Richard Hooker is an important figure. But none of them kind of define Anglicanism per se. So Anglicans have always claimed that whatever is good from, from any tradition, well, we're going to claim that and make it part of our own. But there was uh, a statement that, that it actually came out of the Episcopal Church of the United States in Chicago, uh, but then was ratified by the Lambeth Conference of Bishops. The, the Lambeth Conference of Bishops. Uh, is an event which is supposed to take place approximately every 10 years. It started a little over 100 years ago uh, out of a crisis uh, that happened in South Africa. Uh, and so the Lambeth Conference looked at this statement by 
bishops of the Episcopal Church called the Chicago Quadrilateral and affirmed it. And so it's been called the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. And this states that Anglicanism really has four things that are central to it. Yep. Mm -hmm. What is the root of the word Anglican? English. English. We'll talk about that in a second, too, because that's a major, a major issue. So uh, the Lambeth Quadrilateral said, first of all, that the Bible is the primary source of authority for the church. Uh, secondly, the Lambeth Quadrilateral said that Anglicans affirm uh, the, the two creeds, the, the Nicene and the, and the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I can add to that that the fathers, the early church fathers of the first five centuries have always been rather important um, to Anglicans, and then I've got I've got a few little notes there that say art this and that. That that refers to the Articles of Religion. The Articles of Religion can be found in the back of of the prayer book, um, but I'll just they they come out of the Reformation period, but they have had a great effect. Uh, the Thirty Nine Articles speaks of the three creeds: the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, uh, and it says they ought thoroughly to be received and believed, that they may be proved by certain warrants of Holy Scripture. Uh, the key thing there is that we believe the creeds because we see them to be summaries of what Scripture says, not because they're something different from Scripture, but because they help us to understand Scripture by being a summary of Scripture. Uh, so the, the Lambeth Quadrilateral talked about the two creeds, but the 39 article speaks of the creed, the, uh, the three creeds, including the Athanasian Creed. If you get a hold of the prayer book, you can find all three of those creeds in the prayer book as well as the 39 articles. Uh, thirdly, the Lambeth Quadrilateral said that Anglicans affirm the two gospel sacraments, that is, uh, baptism and Holy Communion as being necessary for uh, for any church. And thirdly, it said that Anglicans affirmed episcopacy. Uh, episcopacy means uh, that we have bishops. Uh, the, the word episkopos in Greek means an overseer, a bishop. And so Anglican polity, Anglican governance has been described as episcopal. Uh, and so Really, the affirmation of episcopacy is to say that Anglicans have a certain church order. And that is not to say that bishops rule everything, uh, because clearly they don't. I take my word for it. Uh, when, when I became a bishop, one of my friends sent around a little, a little saying that he heard. You know, you may sound familiar, those of you who studied philosophy, said, uh, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, to hear it is it still the bishop's fault? <laughs> but uh, bishops are supposed to be a focus of unity for the church. Uh, now, the, Lambeth, the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral affirmed these four things as things that they considered necessary uh, for discussions with other churches about church union. Um, clearly, the Bible, the creeds, and baptism and Holy Communion have been affirmed by most churches as being pretty central, even though they may have s certain different understandings of what baptism is or what Holy Communion is and so forth. Episcopacy is a little, a little more shaky. There are a lot of churches that simply don't affirm episcopacy as uh, as the way to do church governance. Um, some Anglicans have said uh, that we can really think of episcopacy in a couple of different ways. We can think of episcopacy as uh, meaning we need bishops, uh, or we can think of episcopacy as meaning we need episcopate, we need oversight. And there might be other ways of achieving the same thing uh, that episcopacy achieves through, uh, through another means. Frankly, I'd rather not be ruled by a committee, but there are churches that, that do basically that. So um, because we, we affirm those four things and we say that 
through the history of the church, those four things have generally been accepted as normal for the church, uh, then we can describe ourselves as Catholic in the sense that we tend to believe what everybody else believes. Anglicanism also has Protestant roots, though. Uh, if we look at the history of the church, they were, uh, there was a church in England, and Anglicanism has its, as I said, Anglican, the root of the word Anglican is English. The, there was a church in England before the Roman Catholic Church was there. There was a Celtic church. There was a church in England before the Reformation. Uh, and so Anglicanism is not simply completely a Protestant church, but it was very much affected by the Anglican Reformation, and I think in very positive ways. Let me just read uh, a couple of the articles to make clear the kinds of things that were at stake in the Reformation and in some places I think are still at stake. This is Article 6, which talks about the Bible. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. It then, it then lists them, and then it goes on to talk about uh, other books that the church from time to time has affirmed, namely books sometimes, sometimes known as the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, which Anglicans uh, say are useful uh, and can be read for edification, but not to establish any doctrine. So Protestant, in the sense that Scripture trumps tradition, uh, not all Anglicans have tended in that direction, but most Anglicans have generally affirmed that Scripture has priority over tradition in any sense. Uh, the 39 Articles also affirms uh, one of the key uh, points of the, Ang of the Reformation of the 16th century, which is uh, salvation by grace through faith. Let me just read a little bit again of the articles. This is called Article 11, which is on the justification of man. I'm sorry about the gender exclusive language. These were written in the 16th century. Uh, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more largely is expressed in the homily on justification. There was a book called the Book of Homilies that was produced by Thomas Cranmer because many of the clergy were not educated. These homilies were to be read in church uh, where there should have been but often wasn't a sermon before the Reformation. So justification by grace through faith, salvation... Uh, was central to the Reformation and has been claimed by the Anglican Church as, as being central to Anglicanism. Thirdly, uh, it's Protestant in the, in the sense that the Church as an institution uh, seeks the reformation of society. Uh, this was common to all the Reformation churches, that... Uh, the church existed not simply for those who were believers, those who were the gathered community, but they existed for the good of the world, for the good of the society. And so um, Protestant churches tended to be focused on a particular country or sphere. And so uh, Germany was largely Lutheran, uh, and parts of France were largely Reformed. Uh, Scotland was, was certainly reformed, and uh, the English became Anglican, a form of Protestantism which sought the good of the society in that place. This, of course, raises all kinds of issues about uh, what do we do about the world mission of the church? Uh, what do we do when 
people from those countries begin to colonize other countries. Uh, and those questions got raised in a rather sharp way in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and the fourth point, which expresses the kind of Protestant nature of Anglicanism, is that Anglicans believe in a decentralized global authority uh, and have been very clear that the Pope has no authority over the Anglican Church. And this was one of the big sticking points during the Reformation, of course. Uh, let me just read you a little bit. The Visible Church of Christ, this is Article 19. The Visible Church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in the which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. As to the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, as the, oh, sorry, as the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, they've made mistakes, so also the church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in manners of faith. So uh, there's, there's a little bit of curmudgeonliness in the articles about uh, the reality they're living in uh, of in, in the medieval, the late medieval period going into the period of the Reformation. Uh, I've, I've got references to other parts of the 39 articles there. If you want to get a prayer book and look those up, uh, they, can, they can be interesting to you, I think. But Anglicanism, uh, although it started in England, and that's why it's called Anglican, uh, has become, in the last 150 years or so, uh, very much a global phenomenon. And this is uh, partly because Anglicanism, uh, well, partly because England was the major colonial power in the late 18th uh, and through the 19th century. Uh, the sun never set on the British Empire. The Brits followed uh, the Spaniards and the Portuguese in beginning to colonize various parts of the world. There are all kinds of nasty things about that reality, and colonialism is certainly a major issue that non-Western Anglicans talk about and grapple with uh, constantly. But along with colonialism, Anglicans brought their form of Christian faith. Um, now, it seems kind of an oxymoron, in a sense, to talk about Anglicanism as being global, uh, as being both English and universal at, at the same time. We're not the only church that's like that, of course. The Roman Catholic Church is, for many, many years, has been centered in one particular geographical location, but claims Catholicity. It can't, claims uh jurisdiction within the entire world. But as we look at the Anglican Church and how it's spread around the world, we see uh, some obvious things. Uh, first of all, that the largest Anglican churches in the world are in those places where the English were colonial powers. So right at the moment, if I can just kind of give a few quick statistics that are kind of general, not it's almost impossible to get exact numbers, but there are approximately 20 million people in England who claim to be Anglican. That is in the sense that they were baptized in the Church of England uh, and therefore they're not Roman Catholic, they're not Buddhist, they must be C of E. But a very small percentage of that uh, go to church. Probably, uh, probably about a million go to church on a regular basis. Uh, that, that means that the Anglican Church in England itself has great opportunity to do evangelism because there are lots of people who, who claim to be members but really need to hear the gospel. Uh, the largest Anglican Church in terms of people who actually go to church is Nigeria. Uh, they claim 20 million members as well, but they count people who come to church. So really the Anglican Church in Nigeria is probably 20 times the size of the church in England 
in terms of uh, members who are involved. Uh, if, we, if we count down the next largest churches, Anglican churches in the world, the next would probably be Uganda, then Kenya, then South Sudan. So it, it's quite clear that those places that were colonized by the British are places where there is a large Anglican presence. But it's also clear that those places that uh, received the gospel from Anglican missionaries, especially in Africa, have taken that much more seriously than the people who, or the descendants of the people who sent them. Uh, we belong to a black church, essentially. Uh, the vast majority of Anglicans live in Africa. The average Anglican is a 20 to 30 year old Nigerian woman who makes a li living by subsistence farming. That's the reality of the church we live in, but it's not the reality of the power structures of the Anglican communion. So we, we're living with a kind of tension at the moment where uh, that church which had its origins in England has spread across the world uh, and it's had consequences that some people in the Western world are kind of ambivalent about, to say the least. All of a sudden, there's something that they've created that's bigger than them. So this has created some tensions in the communion as, uh, well, for want of a better phrase, Anglicans in Latin America and Asia and Africa have flexed their political muscles and at times said no to the Western church. Uh, and this has made the Western church rather nervous. Uh, I've written a little article on this called The Globalization of Anglicanism. I've got two copies here. I'll be glad to give those to anybody who's interested. Uh, it's, it's not a phenomena that can be reduced to a few pages or to a few comments. It's complicated. Uh, but it's, it's a fascinating reality that's happened to Anglicanism in the last hundred years or so. There is another reality that's happened uh, in terms of the globalization of Anglicanism, and that is that Anglicanism has gone beyond the borders of its original colonies. And it, it's done so in some fascinating ways. One, one former colony of England was Singapore. Uh, and the church in Singapore is quite a strong Anglican church, not a huge Anglican church, but very um, spiritually active. Uh, and they looked around themselves a few years ago and said that God was probably calling them to reach out to their neighbors. And so they started to bring uh, the gospel to churches in other countries in Asia that had not had an Anglican church before and had never had an English presence. Uh, so never been an English or an American colony, uh, but they started Anglican churches in those places. Not English-speaking churches, but indigenous Anglican churches in Vietnam, in Nepal, in Laos, uh, in Indonesia, Thailand. I'm going to be, I'm going to miss something. But they've started churches in all of those places, uh, and those churches are growing. Similarly, uh, I lived with my wife for the last five and a half years in Ethiopia, which again was never a British colony. There were a couple of Anglican churches in the Horn of Africa, uh, in Asmara, Eritrea, and in two churches in Somalia until the 1980s, uh, and a church in Ethiopia, but those were chaplaincies for English expatriates who were coming to live for a time in those countries. But in the 1980s, there was a war in, in Sudan. And uh, during that war, Anglican refugees fled across the border from South Sudan into Ethiopia, and they started churches in refugee camps. And then they started to preach the gospel outside of the camps in local villages. And now there are and, more than 140 churches in that region of Ethiopia, which was never an English-speaking region at all. Uh, we'd never colonized 
by England. In fact, Ethiopians will very proudly tell you they were never colonized by anyone. Uh, Italy tried twice, but failed. Uh, there are two, two um, prominent uh, holidays in Ethiopia, uh, both of which mark times that the, the Italians were driven out of the country. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, they're very proud of the fact they were never colonized. So we have countries like Ethiopia that now have a fairly thriving Anglican church in spite of having no English background at all. So the globalization of Anglicanism keeps going in new and unexpected ways. Nobody sent missionaries to Ethiopia to start churches. Refugees came. Uh, or maybe we could say God sent refugees to Ethiopia as missionaries. Maybe that would be a more realistic way to look at it. So Anglicanism is, has this English ethos. It has a, a form of worship, which we'll look at later, which came out of uh, an English experience, but it's a global church, and that uh, global reality of the church is reshaping what Anglicanism looks like. Now, in recent years, people have begun to talk about Anglicanism as a three-stream movement. I've already mentioned that uh, Anglicans consider themselves to be a kind of via media, a middle way between Catholic and Protestant. Uh, but some people ha have now begun to talk about uh, not only Catholic and Protestant, but another form of Christianity which is influencing the current life of Anglicanism around the world, and that is that it's also charismatic. I think it could be argued, it would take some a little bit of doing, but I think it could be argued that, in fact, uh, the charismatic movement and Pentecostalism has its roots in Anglicanism. Uh, because most people who study Pentecostalism, at least, will tell you that Pentecostalism came out of the holiness movement, and the holiness movement came from Wesleyanism. And the Wesleys were... Anglicans. Now there, you know, there's a few steps there. Think, things kind of mutated as they went, but uh, I don't think we can say that the charismatic experience is something that is foreign to Anglicanism, or that needs to be that Anglicanism needs to protect itself from in some way. The Wesleys had uh, a kind of faith which, well. It's, John Wesley said on the night that he, he seems to have been converted by listening to somebody reading the preface to, to uh, Luther's commentary on the Romans. Uh, he said, I found my heart strangely warmed. It's that kind of warm-hearted uh, expression of Christianity, which is not afraid of uh, emotion before God, which is not afraid of... Uh, kind of vibrant expression of Christianity, that kind of Pentecostal charismatic form of Christianity is having a huge effect on Christianity around the world, not just Anglicanism, uh, but certainly on Anglicanism. Uh, it would be very hard to go to many parts of the world and find an Anglican church that had not been influenced in some way by the charismatic movement. And so gifts of healing, uh, um, uh, other uh, manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are certainly part of the life of Anglican churches, uh, especially in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. You, will, um, you would be more likely to find people dancing in the aisles in African Anglican churches than you would in North American Pentecostal churches. Uh, it's just the way people have experienced the love of God in Christ. It doesn't mean that they've thrown out those things that are Catholic and Protestant. It's that they brought something else with them. And so Anglicanism is a kind of three-stream thing. And it's certainly a reality in North America and various places as well. Now, that is a really, really short 
introduction to kind of some of the trends, some of the ethos of, of Anglican theology and the, kind of the, the borderlines in which Anglicans uh, uh, form the church and talk about God together. Uh, so let me just pause there for a minute before we get into talking about liturgy. Uh, in, in some ways, liturgy is the way that Anglicans talk about theology. So, any questions up right at, right at this point? The 39 Articles are much newer than the creeds. The creeds go back to the early centuries of the church. The 39 Articles come out of the Reformation. The Anglican Church in North America that this parish is a part of affirms both those uh, those creeds and the 39 Articles as, essential, as an essential theological foundation for, for the work that we do. Uh, I remember talking to, to Bob Duncan, to Bishop Duncan about this, uh, when the Anglican Church in North America was being formed. And uh, he was kind of tickled pink because when they were having the initial meetings and beginning to draft constitutions and things, it was the more Catholic-minded folks that said the 39 articles need to be part of what we're doing. And it was the more Protestant folks that said we need to have these three creeds as part of the foundation of who we are. So uh, the reality is Anglicans have always affirmed both of those sources of things, and it makes sense that we reaffirm them at this point in our history in which really uh, in the Western world, uh, those things are being challenged. You can, you can certainly find books written by Anglican theologians and bishops and so forth that challenge everything said in the creeds and the 39 articles. So the fact that the Anglican Church of North America felt the need to reaffirm those things and, and found no difficulty in reaffirming those things is really significant. Yes? You had said that, that it doesn't reflect the power structure, the fact that there's so many Anglicans in Africa. Right. And then you started saying that that, that you know, made the Western church nervous. I thought you were going to say, because they felt uncomfortable with that, that that's not, that doesn't seem right, you know, or, or how it should be. But then I sensed that you were really saying, well, they're kind of worried that they were flexing their muscles. And so I wonder, you know, yeah, yeah, this gets into more, much more recent kind of ecclesiastical politics, which is always a sad reality to have to talk about. And every church has these sad, sad realities that they live with. Um, in 1998, which is kind of a watershed moment, at the Lambeth Conference in 1998, uh, there was a, 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 an article passed called, a motion passed called Lambeth 110. If you Google Lambeth 110, you will find hundreds of things on the internet about Lambeth 110. Lambeth 110 affirms uh, a traditional theology of marriage and says some things about that, about the fact that we need to have a pastoral relationship with people in, in same-sex relationships, but that the church cannot bless those relationships. And it passed overwhelmingly at Lambeth. It, just, it, it wasn't just the Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans. If you had taken all the Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans out of the room, it still would have passed. But uh, there were uh, bishops from primarily from North America, but also from New Zealand, from England, from other parts of the West who... Uh, disagreed and continue to disagree strongly with that traditional stance on marriage. Um, you know, one of the reasons that this uh, uh, reaffirmation of a traditional biblical view of marriage was able to be passed was because the third world leaders of the Anglican churches uh, figured out how Robert's Rules of Order worked, quite literally. Uh, until then, previous Lambeth conferences had been a mystery to most non-Western church leaders, and they kind of they had been run roughshod over. And they will tell you that. 
but they figured out how it worked. And so they managed to introduce a motion that was uh, in favor of this orthodox understanding of marriage and pass it and it went and it passed overwhelmingly. Uh, then Gene Robinson was elected. You can Google that. That was, you know, another major earthquake in in the history of Anglicanism. And he was not invited to Lambeth 2008, but those who consecrated him were. And so because of that, most of the African bishops, some of the Latin American and some of the Asian bishops refused to go. And so a new organization was started at that point called GAFCON, the Global Anglican Futures Conference. So the first GAFCON conference was held in Jerusalem as a kind of alternative to Lambeth. At the same time, Lambeth changed. And here's where I think we see the nervousness of the Western Church about the emergence of non-Western Anglicanism. Lambeth stopped debating resolutions and became a kind of place to come for a couple of weeks for all the bishops to come to talk about things but not make any decisions. And it again was another reason why the third world, so-called third world bishops refused to come. They said, how can we spend all this money, justify this, if we're not making any policy? Or even if we make policy, it won't be listened to by the, the church around the world. So uh, there was no, there is no Lambeth 2018, uh, but there will be one in 2020, and we're still waiting to see who's going who's to be willing to go. And, and the shape of that conference, what, what it's going to look like. So basically the teeth were taken out of uh, any possibility of, of non-Western bishops being able to direct the, the, the movement of the church through the Lambeth Conference. And so they're now looking at how, how can we do that in other ways. So one possibility has been the meeting of the, the primates meeting, which gets called by the Archbishop of Canterbury from time to time, but even that has has been a problem recently. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Was a resolution passed to stop making resolutions? <laughs> no, that was just a decision made by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He set up a committee to um, to design Lambeth 2008, and the design committee dominated by Westerners came up with this new plan which made the Lambeth conference I think fairly useless uh, and I and I'm you know there there are bishops around the world not only in the non-western world but even in the western world who will say I'm not sure it's worth the time and energy so it's it's we're, we're in a real state of uh, flux in in Anglicanism right now and the the non-western world the non-western church gives me a lot of hope the western church gives me far less hope but even in the western church there are, there are glimmers of, of 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 hope out there okay um anything else before we go to liturgy okay yeah well, real quick this is something um, my, my background before coming here was more reformed yep Calvin had a great influence on Yep. theological understanding and when I came to this uh, tradition one of the things when I mentioned this to Jonathan I read through all the 39 articles yep. they're pretty reformed can I sign on yep. and yet at the same time I run into quite a few folks who really lambast Calvin and Calvinism generally yeah that's too bad I, and, yeah. Well, okay, yeah. so I, just, <laughs> I understand we don't yep. necessarily have one theologian or another but yep. it seems like some some folks within this tradition really some do yeah yeah some 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 are upset that there are calvinists within <laughs> anglicanism uh, but we do you know the 39 articles if not calvinist are certainly reformed mm -hmm. uh, they're they're influenced both by lutheranism and by reformed uh, protestantism from the continent they there are modifications there there are differences uh, the 39 articles will speak about predestination to life uh, but not in the other direction uh, there, so there are a number of things that are different uh, but primarily that's a reformed document yeah. 
And it's interesting to we note even one of the great uh, non-Anglican Reformed documents, the Westminster Confession, uh, was written at Westminster Abbey. It, it, you know, so I've been in the room. It's neat uh, where they where they where they met and wrote it. So, yeah, there's there there's there's been an interplay between these traditions for a long time, and it, it continues. There there's there are very strong relationships between Anglicans and Lutherans in different parts of the world, between Anglicans and Methodists in different parts of the world, and between Anglicans and Reformed people in different parts of the world. Uh, and, and those things are, and between Anglicans and Catholics and Anglicans and Orthodox in different parts of the world. And those things are to be encouraged. Uh, Christ himself prayed that we would be one. So if we simply ignore our differences and hope they go away, we, we are not, um, we're not leaning in the direction Jesus seemed to be leaning in to look at ways in which we can live together, learn from one another, and eventually in some way or another achieve some kind of unity that is probably unimaginable to us at the moment, but uh, not unimaginable to Jesus. Okay, liturgy, uh, any, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really it really depends on the place uh, and really our expression of our Christian faith and even our expression of Anglican faith will vary according to the context in which we find ourselves. So, for example, the place that my wife and I were working in for the last five and a half years, uh, which has 140 or more, more than 140 worshiping Anglican congregations. Uh, is a place where most of the people in most of those churches cannot read. It's a a largely non-literate church, and yet they're Anglicans, and they have a liturgy. So how they do that liturgy is going to look different. They memorize the liturgy in their own language, they modify it in some ways by adding in, there are lots of choirs and uh, dancing and singing and all kinds of things that go on in places where when I first got there, I said, why are we singing here? And and after a while, I just said, okay, there's a purpose to this uh, and 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 learned from it. Uh, there, there's my clergy in Ethiopia, were regularly involved in ministries of deliverance of people from evil spirits because that was a reality in which they were living. Uh, You don't see that a lot in Anglican churches in the Western world, not because the devil is not involved here, but because he seems to have other tactics. Uh, Yeah. The African Study Bible... Yeah, uh huh. Ugly Kalu in that has a story it tells about an African guy going off getting a PhD and studying Bolman. It's a great story. It's not a true story, but it is a great story. Yeah, but he comes yeah. back and he's yeah, like, it's a like, parable. Hey, yeah. Deliver this guy from the evil spirit. He's like, he demythologizes the evil spirit. Like, <laughs> I didn't learn that. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah, it's a. Kalu's a. He died recently. It's very sad. Uh, Obu Kalu is a um, Nigerian Presbyterian theologian. And he was doing a sabbatical in Toronto when I was studying there. And I heard he was around, so I went and looked him up. And I found him, and I asked him what he was writing. And he said, well, I'm writing a book on African Pentecostalism. And I didn't know, I knew a little bit about him from his writings, but I didn't know his tradition. I said, are you a Pentecostal? And he smiled, and he said, I'm a Presbyterian, <laughs> but I'm a Pentecostal. <laughs> so I mean that is that is part of the reality of of African uh, Christianity. Okay, liturgy. Um, I think that uh, we can talk about Anglican liturgy being biblical in two senses. First of all, Anglican liturgy uses uh, biblical 
patterns of worship and biblical language. Uh, bishop Munir, who is my boss, he's the Bishop of Egypt uh, and a wonderful man, uh, had some clergy who had some questions about the liturgy as they were using it in in Egypt. And they said, you know, Bishop, is this part biblical? Is this part biblical? Uh, and so he produced a liturgy which simply had, who was just basically was the liturgy, but every time that liturgy was taken from someplace in Scripture, which was about 90% of it, he put the biblical reference so that the clergy and the people could see this comes out of Scripture. Now, there's some obvious places. You know, the Lord's Prayer, most of us know the Lord's Prayer comes from Jesus, it's recorded in the, 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 uh, the version of the Lord's Prayer that we use comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We can, we can find it there in, in morning and evening prayer, which um, don't get used very much in a place that does Holy Communion every week. But in morning and evening prayer, there are canticles that are taken directly from the Psalms and from other parts of Scripture. Uh, and there's, of course, a lot of reading of Scripture in the Anglican liturgy. In, in uh, any one of our Eucharistic services on a Sunday morning, we will generally have four readings, at least four readings from Scripture, three lessons and a psalm, which is taken to be a response to the first lesson. So we read from the Old Testament, the beginning of the story of God's uh, dealings with the world. We read an epistle, an explanation of what God has done in Christ, and we read from uh, from the Gospels, uh, uh, something of the words or life of Jesus, uh, as well as as well as the Psalm. So, Anglican liturgy uses the Bible uh, in order to construct a form of worship that we enter into, uh, and so it's centered on reading, hearing, and preaching the biblical story through an organized lectionary, and through a liturgical calendar. Uh, a lectionary, a lection means a reading. A lectionary is uh, a table of readings uh, that take you through large chunks of scripture over a period of time. The, the lectionary that we're using, uh, which the Anglican Church in North America has recently uh, revised, only slightly is based on what was what is known as uh, the reformed uh, sorry the revised common lectionary the revised common lectionary is an ecumenical document it was the roman catholic church in vatican ii that first came up with this idea of a three-year lectionary but churches around the world uh, most liturgical churches around the world with the exception of the orthodox have uh, entered into the process of being involved in the same lectionary. So if you go to a Roman Catholic church on Sunday, you will probably hear the same readings being read as are being read here. Or if you go to a Lutheran church, you'll probably hear the same readings as are being read here. It is one of the ways in which uh, Anglicans, or the, that Christians of different denominations have begun to work together in a very um, helpful way. Lectionaries are not perfect. Uh, I have questions about choices that are made sometimes in lectionaries. Uh, but the whole idea of it is, is a wonderful idea. So over a three-year period, we read simply in, in the communion service, we will read uh, a massive portion of the Bible over a three-year period. We will read most of each of the three synoptic gospels, good chunk of... Uh, the Gospel of John, interspersed in different places, much of the book of Acts, especially the early chapters of the book of Acts, most of the epistles, uh, and uh, a large a large proportion of, of stories from the Old Testament, as well as uh, most of the Psalms. If there's, there's another lectionary for daily readings, and in that lectionary, if you follow that lectionary, you'll read the Psalms every month, You'll read the Old, the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament uh, twice a year. So it's uh, this organized form of Bible reading as a way of shaping the Christian community 
to look more and more like it is participating in the story of Scripture. The liturgical calendar um, is really divided into two sections. The first section of the liturgical calendar follows the life of Christ uh, for about half the year, and then the, the second part looks at the teachings of Jesus uh, in what is called ordinary time or the Sundays after Trinity or the Sundays after Pentecost. Uh, so we're about to engage in that part of the church year in about a month where everything will be green for almost six months as we read through uh, a large portion of the gospel of, of one of the gospels dealing with what Jesus taught. And then the other half of the year we're looking at what Jesus did. So beginning with, with Advent, looking forward to Christmas, and then the events of, uh, uh, of Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter through to Pentecost and so forth. The, these shape our liturgy on the life of Christ for that half of the year. Uh, so we have biblical patterns of worship and we have big chunks of worship. Uh, one of the, I was in Egypt a few weeks ago and taught um, a course to theological students uh, at a place called the Alexandria School of Theology. Uh, this, is, this is an Anglican theological college that Bishop Muneer started about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, he, was, he was a little, it was a really interesting decision to call it the Alexandria School of Theology because actually there was a previous Alexandria School of Theology which was the first theological college there ever was uh, and uh, formed in Alexandria by people like taught, uh, people like Origen and Clement of Alexandria taught in this. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting decision to call it the, the I don't know why he didn't call it the new Alexandria School of Theology. Maybe he didn't want it to be all that new. He wanted to really look back at our, our tradition as well as at the reality of our life now. But I was teaching a course on Bible and worship um, and I, I made an interesting discovery and one of the things that I did was talk to the students about how um, there, there are parts of the New Testament that clearly were a part of the liturgy of the early church during the New Testament period. There are bits of uh, there are there's well let me just give one example there's a there's a little bit in First Corinthians which gives the narrative of the institution of the Lord's Supper and the words are phrased in such a way that it becomes clear that Paul received this form of words that it was usual to use this form of words in worship uh, and that he was passing it on and expected others to receive it. A uh, similar thing happens in 1 Corinthians 15, where there's a, a short creed, uh, where, again, Paul says, I received what I also passed on to you. And then it talks about uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's a little chunk of what was probably part of the liturgy of the early church in the first century. Other parts of the New Testament, like a big chunk of Colossians chapter 1, probably Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, a number of other places seem to have early Christian hymns in them, which were used by the early Christians in worship. Paul certainly talks about uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs being used in worship. And so it's probable that the Christians simply used the same patterns of worship they, that they knew from Judaism, which was largely centered on the Psalms, as part of their worship experience in the early church. So we use biblical patterns of worship. I had no problem at all making that argument in Egypt. Uh, about a third of the students were Presbyterian, a third were Anglican, and a third were Orthodox. And what I was saying made sense to them. But in North America, when I've tried to make those arguments, I've, I've had a, uh, trouble in some places where they say, oh, that's, that's not liturgy. That's just something Paul wrote down. Uh, or you know, there's a kind of denial that there's anything liturgical 
actually in the New Testament itself, but there's actually quite a bit. Uh, I have a very good Baptist friend uh, who had a sign on his the door of his office. He taught Old Testament at Trinity School for Ministry for a couple of years. He had a sign on his door that said, Baptists don't have a liturgy. We just do the same things over and over again. <laughs> if we're going to do the same things over and over again, we ought to do them in a way uh, that we can clearly say comes from Scripture and helps us to be shaped by Scripture. Um, okay, so Anglican liturgy, I would argue, is biblical, but it's also sacramental. Uh, sacramental means that there is something tangible involved in our worship which has um, a spiritual significance to it. We are, we are uh, multidimensional people. We are people with bodies and minds and spirits. And so every part of our uh, being needs to be involved in our Christian life and especially in our worship. And a sacrament is something that is, is not simply about the head, but is also about the eyes and the ears and the nose that, that connects with us in a tangible, physical way. Uh, two, two things, uh, the biblical sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are clearly uh, incredibly important for the Christian life, and very few Christians uh, from any tradition will deny their importance. Uh, Salvation Army, maybe, but they, you know, they they didn't used to say they were a church. So uh, the fact that they didn't have sacraments uh, didn't mean that they didn't go to a church that had sacraments as well as being involved in the Salvation Army. But they've kind of become a church. Uh, that uh, I would argue has had to in, invent new sacraments. Uh, I think uh, Billy Graham's uh, method of evangelism in which he asked people to stand up and get out of their seats and walk to the front and commit themselves to Christ was a sacramental act. It involved a person not only making a decision with their mind or with their heart, but actually their body had to be involved. Uh, and so a sacrament is, is that kind of thing. It's a recognition that we are integrally related people. And so our worship has to be holistic. Uh, now, some traditions emphasize the spirit, perhaps the charismatic tradition, Pentecostal tradition, may emphasize the spirit. Um, and, and so uh, there's a tendency in some of those circles to think of the worship of the church as that part of the church which focuses on lifting the spirit to God. Uh, and so you will find frequently that there, there will be somebody in a, in a charismatic or a kind of independent Protestant church who is called the worship leader. And that worship leader means he's the guy with the guitar. Uh, because the time of worship is, is a time of singing. Well, I don't want to reduce worship to simply lifting up the spirit to God. Although that's a really important part of what worship is. Some, perhaps uh, Protestant churches fall into this focus on the mind uh, more than other dimensions of, uh, of the Christian life, and so focus on the sermon. So you'll re see this reflected in church architecture, where the pulpit will be central in, in most Protestant churches, and the, the liturgy will have its climax in the sermon. And if the Lord's Supper is celebrated, it's not celebrated uh, on a regular basis. It's celebrated on a, a less regular basis. Now, some Protestants, and I, yeah, I believe them, um, will say we don't want to have Holy Communion every week because that would uh, make it less special. 
Um, perhaps I haven't found I haven't found that doing Holy Communion on a regular basis has made it any less special to me, but perhaps that's true for some people. Uh, Anglicanism, in common with Lutherans, Catholics, and Orthodox, uh, tried to recognize the importance of the body in worship, uh, and so. Uh, more liturgical churches like those will uh, include uh, certain attention to uh, postures for prayer, uh, kneeling at, at particular times, standing at other times, sitting at other times, or even prostration. They may uh, pay more careful attention to the symbolism of church architecture and music and iconography and incense. Uh, I think some go overboard and on insisti insisting on things that are optional. I, I don't think we should ever insist on things that are optional or introducing innovations that are, that are actually uh, distracting or maybe theologically questionable. Let me give you one example. And I have, I have friends who do this, but you know I will complain to them. Uh, and we will still get along. There, there's a practice in some more um, high church Anglican circles when you come to communion to have a set of bells and as uh, the words of institution are being said by the priest, when he says, this is my body, then the bells will be rung. They're called sanctus bells, holy bells, uh, as a kind of uh, to, to remind people it's happened now, that, that the change has taken place, that the ordinary bread and wine are now the body and blood of Christ. I think that's a, that's a problem theologically. Uh, I think we do set aside things for a spiritual purpose, but that doesn't mean a change in the substance of those things. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of change in the spiritual reality that they signify. Uh, but that takes place not simply through particular words and actions at a, at a, at a moment in time, but through the whole, uh, the whole uh, liturgy of the church, and not just through the priest, but through, the, church, through the, the priest and the people gathered together. I can give other examples, but uh, I'm not going to diss my friends anymore. So I think we need to be careful about the kinds of innovations, the kinds of things we introduce, and really ask uh, serious questions about why we're saying the words we're saying, why we're doing the actions we're doing. I think everything we do in a worship service ought to be explainable. Uh, we shouldn't do anything gratuitously. Uh, now, Anglican Eucharistic worship has always claimed... Uh, that 1 Corinthians 11 is kind of the center of our understanding of, of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. So I'd like to just read that passage. I actually like to read the passage in a context in which it's normally not read. Usually in 1 Corinthians 11 we read... Uh, verses 23 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, but we ignore verses 17 to 22 and verses 27 to the end of the chapter. So I'd, I'd like to read 17 right through the end of the chapter, and I, think, I hope you'll see why I think we ought to read that whole thing. In the following instructions, Paul says, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then here's the part that generally gets read and is certainly incorporated into the liturgy. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat in the house. Uh, It's a a long discussion. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give you directions when I come. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the Lord's Supper uh, encourages us to look in five different directions at the same time. And this is why it's such a rich experience, I think, of coming to Holy Communion. First of all, we look back. We remember the Lord's death, Paul says, as as we participate in this meal. So we look back at what Christ has done. Secondly, we look up. The word Eucharisteo in Greek, from which we get the word Eucharist, means I give thanks. So this meal is a meal of thanksgiving to God for the salvation that he has given us in Christ. Thirdly, we look around. Paul talks about discerning the body. He's not talking about discerning some kind of... uh, reality or non-reality of, of, of what the wafer is. He's talking about the people around you. He's talking about discerning the reality of the needs of, of the Christian community. So we look around us. We discern the body as we take communion together. It's called communion because it means we are communing not only with God but with one another. Uh, the Eucharist also forces us to look in Let us examine ourselves, Paul says, and so partake. And so every Eucharist service has a confession uh, in it. And we look forward. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is an anticipatory meal. It's a meal that looks forward to the final banquet at the last day. It looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is a meal which uh, is provisional. It's not the end. It anticipates the end. So those, those are things that I, I hope Anglican worship encourages. And um, I think at its best, uh, it, it does do many of those things. So let's, um, we need to set up and, and then have Holy Communion together. We're going to have an instructed Eucharist. So we'll have about a five or six minute break while we set up. What I'd like to do is have communion in here. And that way we can get much closer uh, to each other. So if somebody would put one table here and then just move the other tables back and set the chairs up in a semicircle, uh, Jonathan and I will get some more things that we need. <laughs>